Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for that prayer, brother. Just a good reminder of, again, who this is that we get to hear from now. This Prince of Peace has given us a book in which he's revealed himself and made known this wisdom from above. So we're going to be looking at some of that wisdom this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're more than welcome to use the one in front of you. It's a blue color, and you can find our passage on page 620. 620. We're going to be reading the whole of Ecclesiastes 8. So hear the word of the Lord. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked." Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. 
Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, as we look at this passage, I want to admit something. I want to admit to you that I have a driving kryptonite. Now, I'm not saying by that that I am by any means a Superman quality driver, but I'm at least average with directions and finding my way around, except when it comes to one place. This one place is my crippling weakness, my arch enemy, my driving nemesis. This place is a land of confusion and mystery, a Bermuda Triangle of navigation. What is this awful place, you ask? Parking lots. Specifically, shopping center parking lots. Some people have no problems with them. I have lots of problems with them. These things are filled with confusing turns, places that seem like they'll lead you the right way, but are really dead ends. Sometimes I just end up going round and round in loops, not getting anywhere. And lots of times I can see exactly where I want to go. I want to go there, but I have no idea how to get there. And most confusing of all, sometimes I want to get to that road there and I have to go the complete opposite direction so that I end up over there. On top of all that, a reason they're so hard is they are filled with obstacles and boundaries. There are curbs and islands and landscaping and light poles and of course other cars and all these things prevent me from just being able to go where I want to go. I feel so limited in these parking lots. Now I realize I could try to just ignore my limits and just drive over the curbs and through the grass but that wouldn't go so well. No, what I need is help knowing how to navigate the confusion of parking lots while staying within the limits. In case you're wondering, this is really true. I am really awful in parking lots. You can ask my wife. Now, while most of you probably don't share my challenges with parking lots, my guess is many of us might feel similarly when it comes to navigating the confusion of life under the sun. As we try to make our way through this life, there are so many mysterious turns. There are ways that look really good, but as we go down them, they end up being dead ends. And there's times where we just feel like we are stuck in a loop and we're right back where we started. We're just going round and round, not getting anywhere in life. Now sometimes we can look ahead and we can see where it is that we want to be. We want to be married. We want to have a family. We want to have a better job. We want to have better friendships. We want to have a stronger walk with God. That's where I want to go. I see it right there. But we have no idea how to get from where we are to where we want to go. And then there are those times where the right path feels like it's taking us the complete opposite direction of where it is we want to go. And part of the reason that we have so much trouble navigating the confusion of life is because there's all these limits we have to deal with. We don't get to just choose anything we want. We are limited by authority over us, whether it's our parents, our boss, or the government. 
We're limited in that we don't get to decide what's right and what's wrong as a creator, but we are simply creatures. And we're limited in the fact that we just can't know and understand how everything in life works. Now, if we try to just ignore these real limits and drive right over them, we end up crashing our lives. So what you and I need this morning is help navigating the confusion of this parking lot called life and its limits. And that's exactly what the preacher has for us this morning in chapter 8. He has wisdom to navigate life's limits. This wisdom is like a GPS for life's confusing twists and turns. And before we get to the navigation, though, he wants us to see some things about wisdom. So I just want to look at verse 1 before I even give us our outline. He sets up the whole chapter in verse 1 by telling us how good this wisdom is. Look at verse 1. He says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. So the preacher wants to know, okay, who truly has the ability to understand and explain something hard to interpret? Who has wisdom like that, he says. Now, we've seen some questions like that in Ecclesiastes, so you might jump to the answer thinking, oh, it's, he, he, he wants us to say, no one. But the second half of the verse tips us off that, well, some do have this kind of wisdom. So the questions are doing something different here. They're not meant to make us say no one. Instead, they're meant to show us that real wisdom is rare and that no one can compare to the one who has this true wisdom. When he talks about interpretation here, he's talking about situations like when Joseph stood before Pharaoh or when Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in fact, the same word is used in the, the Daniel account. In those situations, both of these rulers had dreams that none of the other so-called wise men could make sense of, right? He, the kings looked to all these smart guys who had wisdom and insight beyond everybody else, and they say, all right, tell me what's going on here. And they're like, we have no idea. Got nothing. But then he calls in Joseph in one case and Daniel in another, and they both acknowledge that there is a wisdom to interpret life that comes only from God. Joseph said it this way. He said, do not interpretations belong to God? It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then he explains exactly what his dreams meant. And when Joseph explained it, what did Pharaoh say? He said, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. So he's saying, God gave you wisdom, and that makes you wise. And there's nothing, like you stand apart. Who is like you, the wise? Daniel said the same thing about wisdom. When he stood before the king, he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And then after Daniel explained to him what was going on, the king said, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you, Daniel, have been able to reveal this mystery. So what I want you to see as we start out here is both stories are pointing to the fact that there's 
a real wisdom that's able to interpret life's difficulties that you get nowhere else that only comes from God. Because he alone possesses this kind of wisdom, but the good news is he gives it to those who ask. Or if you stick with our metaphor from the intro, only God has the, all the map data for all of life. Only he knows every twist and turn and road closure and parking bumper. So if we want the wisdom that's able to help us navigate life, we have to receive it from him. And James 1, the good news is, he loves to give it generously to those who ask. Now notice also the transformative power of real wisdom. Not only is it rare, it actually changes us. It changes even our appearance. This, this is stunning, but that's just what it's saying. And yet the more I thought about it is, haven't you ever noticed this when you're hanging out with, with a godly saint? There's just, there's something different about their countenance. There's almost a, a glow about them as they exude godly wisdom. It's saying that when we trust the Lord, it softens the hardness of our face and it gives us a gentle joy that others can actually see. Now, this isn't talking about slapping on a fake smile. It's not like, I'm going to be wise today, <laughs> right? It doesn't work like that. This is talking about what Psalm 34, 5 says when it says, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. So, as we start, I want you to see that this wisdom that we're talking about is a kind of wisdom that's rare and makes us radiant. It's a wisdom that's received only from God. Okay, now with that kind of umbrella over everything, what's the wisdom that we find here to help us navigate life's limits? You can go ahead and throw up the outline. Four things he tells us in this passage. Number one, submit to authority. Number two, fear God. Number three, be joyful. And number four, know your limits. Okay, so let's walk through these. So as we're hopping into our car here, firing up the GPS, the first thing we see in our little screen is submit to authority. So look at verse two. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? So our first thing he tells us here is keep the king's command. In other words, when you are under the authority of someone else, our default response should be to obey what they tell us. He says we should not be quick to leave them and disrespect them. So it's like don't be hasty to depart from his presence. When it says not to take a stand in an evil cause, it's most likely talking about a rebellion against him and against their authority. So he says don't do that. Instead, our posture is meant to be one that's eager to obey the direction of someone in authority over us. And yet we know this goes against our impulses, doesn't it? Being told to submit to authority often can sound to us like nails on a chalkboard. Like you can tell me a lot of things, but when you say submit to authority, there's something in us that just bristles at that. 
whether it's our parents. I mean, this is how, how much of growing up is this teaching your kids to obey you? Whether it's your bosses, whether it's the government, anyone who's in charge over you, there's just something that wants us to push back and not submit, not obey. And yet what we need to realize here is that God is working through those authorities, whether it's your parents, your bosses, or your government officials. One reason it tells us here to keep the king's command, it says because of God's oath to him. Now, most likely, this is referring to God's promise to David and the kings who followed him, that he was going to establish his line and make sure that there would be a king on the throne. And the people were meant to recognize that whatever the king was like that followed, he'd been put there by God. It's saying God swore an oath, and so like this king that's on the throne, you might like him, you might hate him, but guess who put him there? God. Now, we don't have a king. We certainly don't have a king that we know that God has sovereignly put there in the line of kings. And yet the Bible tells us the same thing is true for our government officials. Listen to Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. That's massive. It's not just saying as long as, as long as your government official is a Christian or as long as he sides with you on policy decisions. It's saying whoever resists the authorities, whatever they may be like, resists what God has appointed. In other words... One way we obey God is by obeying our authorities. So we just had an election on Tuesday. What that means for us is no matter whether the candidate you voted for won or lost, as Christians, we are called to submit to their authority. Now, obviously, there is a limit. We know from other places in Scripture, like John 5, that if the government or your boss commands you to do something sinful... You must always obey God. Why? Because he's the higher authority. So the principle still holds. You always submit to your authority. And when our earthly authority and our heavenly authority come into conflict, God wins every time. But unless they come into conflict, we are called to keep the king's command. Another reason he gives us to keep the king's command is he says because he has the power to do whatever he pleases. And no one dares question him saying, hey, what are you doing? This is a call to be wise and discerning in how you interact with authorities. you got to first of all remember, they are in a position of authority. So before you go into your boss and just start railing against him, telling him how awful you think your workplace is and how you have this better idea, remember, he's the boss. Same thing with the government. You, you, you can protest, but make sure you know going in who's in a position of authority. Because if we want to see changes, the right answer is not always openly defying those in authority. After all, Jesus told us, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, I don't know if i got to break this down to you, but in the whole sheep-wolf relationship, there's an imbalance of power. Okay, 
and it's not the sheep who have it. And Jesus says, that's who you are. You're not in a position where you can make changes and take the world by your might. He says, you got to use wisdom. You have to be wise as serpents. So instead of grumbling against authority and rushing to rebel against them, the preacher here says, no, 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 there's a better way. Look at verses 5 and 6. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. He's saying those who have real wisdom will know the right time and the right way to handle things. Whether it's in your workplace, in regards to the government, or even in your relationship with your parents, or your teachers, or any other authority structure. A couple examples to think about. Think about Nathan approaching King David to confront him in his sin. Nathan just didn't walk into the presence of the king because he's the king. He didn't just walk up and say, David, you committed adultery, man. Do you know how awful that is? Do you know how much God is against that? He could have, and he would have been right. But he didn't do that, did he? Instead, he went carefully and prayerfully. He used tact and wisdom. He told this story about a little lamb and it being taken so that he got David to see what he was saying. And he said, David, that's, that's you. Or think about Esther before the king there. She didn't just accuse Haman right away and say, hey, this guy's got an evil plot against the Jews and you need to do something about it. She was patient and she was respectful. She honored the way that the processes and protocols of the day worked as she dealt with the king. And you could just go through scripture, multiply example after example of how God's people used wisdom in their dealings with authority. And we see here the same is to be true for us when we deal with those in authority. We shouldn't just make hasty decisions, just knee-jerk reactions, off-the-cuff responses, or try to force things on our timeline. Well, that's not right. Let's fix it today. We're to be patient and wait on the Lord, even if waiting is hard. That's what verse 6 is saying when it says there's a time for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. It's saying that even if patience is painful, wisdom knows that there is a right time and a right way for everything. And it doesn't just run ahead, but it waits on the Lord. Why should we wait on the Lord? Because we're limited in what we actually know. Look at verse 7. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? Quite simply, friends, we have no idea what the future holds, whether five decades from now or even five minutes from now. No matter how wise we are, there's a lot of things we can know, but we are limited in our knowledge of what's coming. But he says that's not the only way we're limited. He goes on, he says, there's other ways in which we're limited. Look at verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. He just kind of does a quick four-picture slideshow here of ways our power is limited. He says, first, none of us has the power to hold on to the spirit, or the same word could mean breath. 
And uh, whichever it is, the same idea is that when our last breath leaves our body, we can't hold on to it for one second more. Like there's no one, as, you, as you're exhaling your last breath, they can say, no, 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 I'm going to take two more. You don't have that power. In the same way, none of us has power over when that day comes. We don't know when it will be. We can't plan it, and we can't push it back. When the day of death comes, there will be nothing we can do to extend our lives. Third, once a battle starts, no soldier can leave the army. You can't just be like, oh, things are getting serious. You know what? I, I'm actually going to go back home now. Thanks. You guys, good luck. He says, no, once the battle's on, you cannot leave. You're in it. And all the dangers are now yours. He is powerless to escape the fighting and potential death. And fourth, even if the wicked seem to prosper and be powerful in this life, in the end, their wickedness is powerless to deliver them. Sooner or later, they will face the consequences of their wickedness. So he gives us these four pictures here. And then in verse 9, he makes the point that even though we are so limited in our power, in this lifetime, says people will have the ability to use the power they have to hurt others. He says, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Sadly, we know this is reality. That people will wield their influence and authority and power in harmful ways. And that is exactly why we need to walk in wisdom and submit to authority as we seek to navigate life's challenges. That's the first thing our, our little GPS told us. Now we just took a turn and so the next direction pops up. And as we submit to authority, the second direction of wisdom is that we must always recognize God as our highest authority and therefore fear him. In verses 10 and 11, he's going to show us why it's tempting to not fear God, but instead forget God. Why it's tempting, why we, we so easily fall into just going along to get along. He says, first, there sometimes seems to be no consequences for wickedness. Look at verse 10. He said, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. And were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So our preacher is here and he's watching a funeral. He's watching the funeral of this wicked person. This is not a good or godly person. This is a wicked one. And he's remembering how this guy, even though they were wicked, he's like, yeah, they used to go to church. <laughs> like they were living this life where they were, they'd go to church on Sunday, but everybody knew how they were living the rest of the week. And now, now that they're dying, he says, people are praising them in the same city. Like the people who knew them are like, oh, they was such a good guy. Really, really smart. Did a lot. They're admiring who they are and all their accomplishments. Because they're getting this dignified and proper burial. And he's like, he's like, that's not what they deserved. They, they were horrible people. And yet now he's saying they're getting praise in the very place where they did all wickedness. So he's saying, wait. If this is the legacy you have for doing wicked, why not just be wicked? What's the point of fearing God? That's why he says this also is vanity. Verse 11 then goes further. It shows the fallout of this type of thinking. 
He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now again, these are, these are principles that once you stop and think, we all know this to be true. I mean, even as kids, if someone in your group of friends or in your class broke the rules, but they didn't get in trouble right away, it kind of enticed you to say, well, maybe I could try that. Like, you all thought it was a scary, like, that's a line you don't cross. You don't go in that room or you don't play with that. But then somebody went in that room and nothing happened. Like, we weren't sure what would happen, but we thought, sure, if you ever went into that room, you probably, the floor would swallow you up. It almost did, right then. Okay. But then, once nothing happened, it starts to entice you and make you think, oh, maybe it's not as scary as I thought. Maybe this isn't a big deal. Or maybe the same thing happens at work. Some of your coworkers, you're like, they take long lunches every day. I bet. I bet no one would notice if I did too. They've never gotten in trouble. Or one that probably almost all of us can relate to. You're on the road and everybody else is driving 80. I haven't seen anybody else getting pulled over. I guess it must be okay to go 80. Hopefully everybody's feeling guilty right about now. Or, here's one, even in the church, you're feeling a little tired one Sunday, so you say, you know what, I'm just going to, we're just not going to go. <laughs> not sick, I have no good reason, I just, eh, I kind of like to sleep in. So you do it, nothing happened. Like you weren't kicked out of church, you don't feel like God loves you any less, so you're like, oh, well, there's, okay. So I guess maybe we can do it next time. Whenever there's a delay between a wrong action and its consequences, our hearts are tempted to see that as a green light to keep going in whatever that wrong action is. The consequences are meant to, to be that red light, make a slam on the brakes and say, oh, I can't go. But when nothing happens, we assume, oh, that must mean a green light. It says we are set fully on doing evil because we don't think there's going to be any repercussions. I sinned and I wasn't struck down by lightning, so maybe it's not that big a deal after all. And because it's not a big deal, we keep inching our way a little further and a little further and a little further and waiting until we hit that, that consequence that makes us say, okay, 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 I'll back up. But if we don't, if there's a delay between the action and the consequence, we just kind of keep going. And before long, we're living a life completely apart from God. We've functionally forgotten God. Now, I'm not saying when, that we don't remember he exists but we live like he doesn't or that he doesn't really care about sin. God must not make it a big deal or he doesn't care how we live. I mean, he must not, right? Nothing bad has happened to me. I haven't lost my job. My marriage is still intact. I mean, things are going well. So, in fact, not just for me, I look around at other people who are living the same way apart from God and they seem to be fine. In fact, they seem to be doing pretty well. That's where we are in verse 11, but that's not the end of the story. The wisdom we need comes in verses 12 and 13. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know 
that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. He says, look, you need to see what's really going on here. It's like you're stopping the movie partway through and you think you know the resolution. He's like, there's, there's more. Unpause and let it play out. Even though a sinner lives a prosperous, long life, and there seems, key word, seems to be no consequences for their sin, that's not reality. The sentence might have been delayed, but the sentence is coming. As we sang, Jesus will come back again to judge the living and the dead. Later in chapter 12, Ecclesiastes will tell us God will bring every deed into judgment. Everything. In case you think it's just deeds, he goes on and says, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Romans 14 says each of us will give an account of himself to God. So if you're here, friends, you are included. It's me, it's you, it's everybody you meet. We will all give an account for every word said, for every secret thought you've had, for every deed you've done wrong and every good deed you've failed to do. Don't be duped by the lie that sin has no consequences. Just because nothing bad happens the moment you sin, don't think it doesn't matter. Just because others might completely forget about God and still have a good job with a happy family and a nice house and comfortable retirement, don't for a moment think their sin doesn't matter. The sentence is delayed but it's coming. We will all have to answer for everything. And for the wicked, verse 13 says, it will not be well. The wicked will face the wrath of the king he's rebelled against. Friends, hell is real and it's the real sentence for those who forget God and live apart from him. That's reality. And that's the glaring red light we need to have. Every time you're tempted to cross that line, whether it's to take that thing at work, that little seemingly innocent pencil that's not yours, whether it's to lie on your taxes, whether it's to cheat on your spouse, whether it's to look at that website, whatever the line you're thinking about crossing and you think there will be no consequence, you need to have a big red light saying sin has consequences. And if that's all there was, Oh, how we would despair. But thanks be to God, that's not the only thing we see here. Look at verse 12 again. He says, yet I know. I love that word because all throughout the book he's been saying, here's what I saw, here's what I saw, here's what I saw. He changes it here. He says, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Why? Because they fear before him. 
You say, but wait a minute. But what about all those sins you just talked about? I know the things I've thought. I know the things I've said. I know the things I've done. And I know the things I've not done. What about all those sins that I'm going to be held accountable for? What about the consequences? My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Trusting in Jesus, friends, doesn't mean that there are no consequences for sin, that God just sweeps it under the rug and says, ah, don't worry about it. You belong to me. No, 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 no. There are consequences. And being a Christian means that all the consequences for all your sin were put on Jesus. It means in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Friends, if you're here and you're not trusting Jesus, right now, I am not asking you whether when you were a kid, you prayed a prayer. I'm not asking if you went to camp and you had a really tingly feeling when a speaker gave a talk. I'm asking right now, today, in this service, if you're not trusting Jesus, your sentence for your sins against a holy God might not be speedy, but it is certain. You will face God and be held accountable for how you've lived the life he's given you. And there's only two choices. Either you serve the eternal sentence for your evil deeds, or you trust that Jesus served it for you. The good news is you can leave today and know it is well with your soul. You don't have to live with uncertainty wondering, have I done enough? Have I been enough? What if I mess up tomorrow? You can know that all my sin was on him laid. And when we trust Jesus, we can actually look forward to seeing Jesus face to face. I hope you know when we sing that Jesus will come back again, that's only ominous if you're not a Christian. I think sometimes people think, oh, when Jesus will come back again to judge the living and the dead, we think, why are we celebrating that? It's because it's only ominous if you're not a Christian. If you belong to him, that's the best news in the world. Because when that trump resounds and the Lord descends, even so, it is well with my soul. Why? Because all my sin's been paid for. I'm not going to answer for the crimes I've committed. Jesus has answered for them already. My only plea is his blood. The only difference between serving a sentence and singing it as well is one thing in our passage. The fear of God. Being in awe of him. Trusting him. Loving him. That's what separates us from serving a sentence and singing it as well. So the second direction we need to navigate life's limits is to fear God. Now back in verse 10, the preacher lamented the vanity of how the wicked are honored when they die. He said that was troubling. Now in verse 14 he says, there's a similar vanity that happens while they're still alive. Look at verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. He's saying, look, life doesn't make sense all the times. Sometimes things don't go the way that they should. 
Powerful people sometimes hurt others. The wicked prosper. The righteous suffer. He's like, this just isn't right, he's saying. So what should we do? Knowing that to be the case, what should we do? Should we throw up our hands in despair? Should we just get angry at the way things are? What does he tell us? Look at verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. I hope you feel how shockingly awesome this is. Like everything he's been saying, the injustice of the world, the way that things don't go the way we feel like we know they ought to go, everything in us apart from God would say, I, I don't know what to do. I give up. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm scared. I'm confused. I'm angry. He says, you, you want to know what I, I would suggest? I suggest joy. You're like, I'm sorry. Come again? He says, no, no, no. I commend joy. He says, there's nothing better. Nothing better for you to do than to eat and drink and be joyful. I loved how one writer put it when commenting on this verse. Listen to this. This is so good. He said, what should a man do in a world of powerful kings and wicked men who look as though they got away with it? He should prepare to make merry. While the wicked scheme against God, his church, and each other, the righteous are to sit down together and praise God from whom all blessings flow. We are to say grace and eat up. We are to host countercultural party after countercultural party. The Christian life is gathering together one day in seven, at the very least, he says, to delight in pre fall fun in light of resurrection realities. It means we do the things we were created to do before there was sin in the world, and we delight in them in light of the fact that one day it will be like that. This is the good news. If you think the Christian life was meant to be draw, 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 and there's a word I'm trying to say. Drab and dull. There you go. I knew that. <laughs> Bear with me. If it's dull and drab or even droll, you don't understand Christianity. Christianity is meant to be joyful. And as we're navigating life with our limited knowledge, our limited power, and our limited understanding. Don't get overwhelmed by all of life's problems and complexities. Enjoy God's grace. Enjoy his ordinary gifts of food and drink. Friends, don't miss out on the joy God has for you today. And by today, I actually mean today, like Sunday, November 12th. He has joy for you today because we can spend so much of our lives worrying and trying to solve all of life's challenges, thinking, okay, once I get through this, and once I get this situation in my life figured out, then I might be able to enjoy life. Friends, God doesn't just have joy at the destination. He has joy in the journey. God is calling us to be joyful and enjoy life today, even with all its pains and problems. How can we do that? I'm glad you asked. That brings us to our last point. Know your limits. Look at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, 
Then I saw all the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What he's reminding us here at the end, he's saying no matter how hard we might try, even if you lose sleep trying to make sense of it all, we'll never be able to know all that God is doing. We are limited in our ability to know the work of God. As one pastor says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them. And that is both humbling and hope-giving. It's humbling because we can't begin to comprehend all the ways God's working right now, like right in this service. I might speculate and be able to name two, four, maybe even eight of them. But God is doing so many things because we are limited in our wisdom. Deuteronomy 29 reminds us the secret things belong to the Lord our God. He doesn't tell us everything he's doing. So we can either spend our lives wearing ourselves out, trying to understand it all and make sense of everything in life, or we can rest in him, knowing our God is up to something good. How do we know he's up to something good? Because he promised he would be. Jeremiah 32, 40, God says, I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, this is how we can eat and drink and be joyful even when life is confusing and hard because we don't know what all God is doing but we know that all that God is doing is good even when it doesn't seem like it just look at the cross just when it seemed like things were at their worst God was doing his greatest good and who knows whether the very thing you're walking through right now might not turn out to be one of God's greatest kindnesses to you. We don't know all that God is up to, but we know he's up to something good. So friends, his way might be mysterious, but ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. It means you won't know. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. So as we navigate the confusing parking lot of life, With our limited knowledge, limited power, and limited understanding, let's trust the goodness and wisdom of our God to guide us every step of the way. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are God and we are not. That to you belong all wisdom and understanding. God, we freely confess our lack of wisdom, and so we do what you tell us to do in James. We ask 
Would you make us wise this morning? Help us to know the ways you've called us to walk and help us to see that your ways are better than our ways. So God, would you be gracious to us this morning? Even as we sing this last song, would you remind us that even when life is hard and confusing and we don't understand it, you are up to something good. So God, please cause that to strengthen weak souls this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.